Hello, today is Tuesday, June 11th. This is the Daily Perspective from Politics and Seed. Thomas is here with me in Raleigh today. Thomas, how are you doing so far? Doing great, Kirk. Thanks. Well, I know it's been a bit of a slow week so far, but we did have a few things from last week that are still affecting the, uh, the zeitgeist in a way, but you wrote yesterday a piece talking about how North Carolina had been built on um, both sides kind of working together and, and mainly that they shied away from divisive social issues and instead tried to focus on issues where maybe, you know, conservatives and liberals could work together a little bit to make progress in the state. So could you talk a bit about that article and what you were getting at with that? Well, what I was really getting at was the whole purpose of the, the so-called Born Alive bill. Um, it's a bill that has it affects almost nobody. There's never been, a uh, so far, there's never been a record of a, a child surviving an abortion and then dying on the table. That, that's never happened in North Carolina. So we, we created a bill whose main goal was to cause division, to fire up the GOP base, and, and to uh, really fire up the, the uh, pro-choice crowd on the other side so Republicans would have a campaign issue saying, hey, Democrats want to let babies die on the table. And it's, it's a different way of governing. For basically 50 years, Democrats and Republicans tried to keep a lid on the most divisive social issues, and they did so pretty successfully. We uh, we weren't all we weren't ever uh, a cutting edge state when it came to civil rights or, or, or any other social justice issues, but we also weren't standing in the schoolhouse door. Um, we kind of let history drag us along, and uh, and and it, it worked pretty well. We didn't have we had we had periods of unrest, but nothing like what they had in the Deep South. Um, and we moved forward building a. a world-class university system, uh, a top-notch community college system, and one of the largest economies in, in, the, in the nation. And, and we did that through really embracing moderation. Um, and neither side tried to open that can of worms of, of social, the, the, the social conservatism that's always been a, an undercurrent in North Carolina pro- politics. You couldn't ignore it, but you also didn't have to kind of uh, poke the bear, so to speak. Republicans, when they took control in 2010, shifted tactics, and they poked the bear all the time. They started out with Amendment 1, an an inherently divisive uh, amendment to the Constitution banning uh, gay marriage. They uh, passed HB 2, they, uh, which, which got national scorn and brought, brought national attention to, to the divisiveness in North Carolina. They, uh, they, they overrode local governments to make nonpartisan races partisan and to redistrict school boards and, and county commission races and, and city council races in an attempt to give Republicans partisan advantage. They made judicial races that were nonpartisan partisan, the only state in the nation to do that. They have used division as a political and governing tool, and that's different than we ever, what we ever had, and the result has not been good for North Carolinians. Look, the whole country's divided and polarized now, but we saw it earlier, and we, and, and we see a deliberate attempt to keep the nation polarized, keep the state polarized, because Republicans feel like that's to their 
political advantage. And, and that's not good. It's not good for our state. It's really not good for our politics. Um, and, and I think that, that bill was kind of a prime example of uh, using division as a political tool. Well, to your point with the divisive issues, that bill did not, they were not able to overcome the governor's veto in the House. And a lot of people pointed to that as an indication that Democrats are able to cobble together enough uh, votes, at least in the House, to uphold the governor's veto. And I think today, WRAL had a uh, an editorial which was suggesting that maybe the governor and the legislative leaders could work together now, that Governor Cooper has this veto power. But given their track record in the past few years of, like you say, these divisive issues, do you think there's any room for them really to work together in the rest of this budgeting process? There's certainly room. There's probably not a will. And that that's the, that's the problem. Um, you know, just like I think Repu- Democrats had a hard time finding their way being a minority party, Republicans are going to find, going to have to take a little bit of time to realize that they are no longer a monolithic party. I mean, they, they basically governed as, as a, an authoritarian state when they had veto-proof majorities and the governor's mansion. They did whatever they wanted to do. And uh, they were able to override Cooper's vetoes for the first two years. And now what we've just seen is that they probably can't override his vetoes going forward. And that's pretty empowering for Democrats. Um, But I don't think that you're going to see Republicans come to the negotiating table real fast. They're going to have to learn that their power is restricted and it's it's not going to be a single instance of sustaining a veto. Yeah, and whenever McCrory was governor, even then the legislative Republicans were able to do what they wanted, regardless of what he had any input on. If he, if he vetoed something, they could still override him. And, and That's so right. It doesn't seem likely that they would extend any more courtesy to a Democratic governor than they did a member of their own party. But to move that conversation more nationally today, you put a post up about Joe Biden and the politics of Democrats now in the era of Trump. And Biden seems to stand as this singular figure that is selling a different message than I would think about the other 20 Democrats running for president are. So what are your thoughts on the Biden message and how he's attempting to run for president right now? I think Joe Biden, as as, uh, Chris Matthews said, owns his lane. And his lane is saying he wants to take America back to where it was before Donald Trump. He also keeps saying that um, if we get rid of Trump, we'll see a lot of Republicans come along, come around. And I think that comes from a couple of different places. It, one is, I think he, he does believe that, that we need to get back to the civility that he remembers, even though there wasn't that much civility in the Obama administration. Um, but he wants to get back to more civility. He wants to get back to a, a time where institutions mattered, and Trump's pretty much trampled institutions. Um, and, uh, you know, I think where he's, what the rest of the field thinks they need to do is they think that Trump is a symptom of a much broader problem of disrest and dysfunction or unrest and dysfunction in this country. And, and they point to income inequality as the roots of that. And, and there, there, there may be truth in that. That said, I'm not sure that's the way the, the electorate thinks about politics. And, and 
Biden is talking in a way that nobody else is. The re- or, or let me rephrase that. None of the other front runners are. Elizabeth Warren's probably running the best campaign right now. She's, she's really put together some comprehensive programs. She's getting a lot of attention. She looks optimistic. She's gaining on Bernie Sanders, who I think is running the most lackluster campaign of all of them. Um, and, and she's probably going to become the, the candidate to the, on the left. You know, uh, Mayor Pete uh, is, is still attracting attention both by what he says, making smart comments, and, and, and how he says it. But he said exactly what I think a lot of people think about Biden is, is that, uh, you know, things have changed. We can't go back to the past. We have to go forward. Um, but again, I think there's a whole lot of this country that thinks that, the, the, that Trump is, an in, is a singular problem. Right now, the economy's going great. If they're not satisfied with, with, with the direction of the, of the country, they're probably pointing at the president and his kind of reality show mentality of running, running the country. And they, they, they're tired of it. it there, there used to be what they called Clinton fatigue in the late 90s, where people were tired of us going from just scandal to scandal to scandal. I think there's, there's Trump fatigue right now, where people are just tired of, of uh, you know, um, not really crises, but just, you know, tariffs or trade wars or, or, or kids in cages or, you know, it's just one, one little thing after the other. And they're, they're, they're getting sick of it. And I think what Biden is tapping into is, is the mentality that these elections are really about me. And that's the way voters think about it. What are you going to do for me? They're not looking for great big programs to solve all the problems. They're looking for things that are going to directly affect their lives. And Biden's saying, look, I'm going to take Trump on on health care because he's failed us on health care. He talks about raising the minimum wage. Those things are very tangible to people. When you talk about breaking up monopolies, most voters don't know what you're talking about exactly. They don't understand why Facebook needs to be broken up. They don't understand why Amazon needs to be broken up, even if they do. It's not a very good political message for, for a lot of the kind of swing voters out there. And I think the reason Biden's popular and the reason his pop- popularity has, made, has sustained itself is because there are a lot of people who, are, who think like Joe Biden and, uh, or, or think like Joe Biden is, Biden is talking anyhow. And um, uh, I, I mean, I think it's his message that's resonating with people. Now, I also think there are other people in that pack of 23 who share that message. I think Steve Bullock out of Montana, um, Michael Bennett, senator from uh, uh, Colorado, uh, Hickenlooper, former governor of Colorado, uh, Amy Klobuchar, out of senator from Minnesota, um, to a lesser degree, uh, Kirsten Gillibrand, senator from New York, all share that kind of centrist view of, of, of politics. And the reason they do is because they've gotten elected in, in states, or in the case of Gillibrand, in a district where you have a lot of moderate voters. And, uh, you know, I, I think any of those people could step up and carry the same message as Biden. They just haven't gotten the traction yet. And I think that's the question that we're going to see. Are these debates going to give anybody momentum 
to, to challenge uh, Biden for this lane that he is currently owning? Um, and if so, can they get enough traction to uh, be on his heels by the time we get to uh, the, the Iowa caucuses next January? Well, just to bookend this conversation, President Trump won his election in 2016, uh, mostly with, you know, maybe 90,000 votes across Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. Uh, I don't know if this is a question we've addressed yet before on this podcast, but a lot of people say the fundamentals favor the incumbent with a good economy, but Trump is also a particularly unpopular president, uh, even though it seems to be pretty consistently the same since he was elected. If you guessed now, do you think he'd win re-election in 2020? Uh, it's hard for me to guess that. I, I, I think that's right, though. I think, I think people are underestimating him if they think they're, that he's that he's, uh, uh, you know, a, 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 he's not a front runner. I, I mean, or would you think he? Do you think he's the favorite right now? All things considered, I, I think give you know until Democrats have a nominee, yeah, he's probably the favorite. Now the whole dynamic will change sometime next. By, by this time next year, we'll have a whole different sense of what's going on. Sure. But, um, you know, uh, we'll see. I don't. He hasn't been able to control himself for three years, and I do think that there is fatigue with Trump right now. And uh, if he can't get some of his more extreme behavior under control there's liable to he's liable to go into the general election with fatigue not having to do with the economy not having to do with anything else except him and that's uh that'll make him more vulnerable well i think that should about do it and next time there should be some more news that is a bit more north carolina centric um for Politics and Seas Daily, this is Kirk Kovac and Thomas Mills. Thank you for listening. Please give us a review wherever you listen to this podcast and make sure you visit politicsnc.com to read all the articles we talked about today and more. And we will see you tomorrow. Thanks. Thanks.